Two dozen gleaming, stripped-down Harleys filled the parking lot of a bar called the El Adobe. The angels were shouting, laughing, and drinking beer, paying no attention to two teenage boys who stood at the fringe of the crowd, looking scared. Finally, one of the boys spoke to a lean, bearded outlaw named Gut. We like your bikes, man. They're really sharp. Gut glanced at him, and then at the bikes. I'm glad you like them, he said. They're all we have. It says dirtbags in the title. We can do what we want. This is the Enlightened Dirtbags Podcast. My name is Jonah Condro. And I'm version two. In the first season of our podcast, we'll be discussing seven books about motorcycles. We're glad you're here. Let's turn some pages. I didn't realize this was his first book. I'm not really sure. First published book. Yeah, I'm not really sure like when certain books of his got published, right? I've kind of got like this patchwork of Hunter S. Thompson, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but this, Hell's Angels, A Strange and Terrible Saga, that's the one that really like, oh, this guy, we need to pay attention to this writer. Like this is the book that is like pretty much like showed Hunter S. Thompson to the world, right? Right, right. Yeah, because it doesn't seem like he has his notoriety yet in this. He's just some guy. Like, I've read, I'm going to say, a lot of Hunter S. Thompson, right? Like, I haven't certainly read it all, but I've read read quite a bit, right? Yeah. And even listened to interviews where he's speaking, right? And he definitely has, when, when you hear about, like, authors and their voice, he definitely has a very, he has his own voice, right? And after you listen to Hunter S. Thompson speak, whether it's on, like, a, something televised or just like a recording and then you read his work like you can hear him in the work right and so in this book in hell's angels this is the second time that i read uh, strange and terrible saga his voice is there but it's it's almost sort of like muted right it's not like when you read uh fear and loathing in las vegas you're like yep there it is yeah i can i can hear that yeah i found it it didn't feel like his character came out until the second half of the book you know it was like it's the first half, I guess, I figured it was because he's talking a lot about like newspaper articles and whatever, and he doesn't really get into him discussing his own personal interactions and feelings about the members until later on. And that's when, you know, the way he describes things starts to come out. But also, like we were saying, you know, if it's one of his earlier books, maybe he hasn't really found that way of of uh, putting his personality into his books yet. This is the book... That started with a news article. I can't recall uh, who, which news outlet had hired him to write a piece. And I think that was in like 1965. And so it kind of gave, I believe he calls it like, it gave it the framework for the book. He's like, oh, well, this is, this is a book just waiting to happen. Right. And so I think he spent 12 months with the Hells Angels in California. I think that was in like 1965. And I think he was, kind of putting the final touches on this particular book in 66. I believe that's when it got published, is in 1966. Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, And it sounds like the time frame kind of was spaced out a bit. Like, I think start to finish of it all was actually about two years with spacing in between with the time he spent with them, but not a steady two years kind of thing. But he did kind of, he didn't really build a reputation with them himself, you know? Like, he... uh, 
Uh, it's a it's a unique one because they don't really accept him that much, but just him being around long enough that he's not just some journalist, right? Like he has kind of established some friendships here. You know, he's not someone just writing a piece. He's kind of having personal interactions with them along the way. And this is like sort of the birth of gonzo journalism where you can't just report on something, right? Mm. You have to like your presence as that individualistic journalist makes the story. So it's like this weird symbiotic relationship that Hunter S. Thompson has with the Hells Angels in like Oakland, particularly, right? And that's sort of like this, you see, like, there's a lot to unpack with this book. One, it's the Hells Angels, like the most infamous motorcycle gang club on the planet. And then you also have Hunter S. Thompson. He's one of the most like, interesting sort of writers kind of coming out of uh, uh, that sort of era in American history, right? And you also have like this weird sort of like, it's sort of underlined throughout this entire book is like, he's sort of inventing gonzo journalism as he spends time with the Hells Angels. So there's a lot going on in this particular book, right? I think a lot of the times when you, you know, read articles about, you know, different cultures or, you know, gangs or clubs or whatever it might be, certain events, a lot of the time you're getting really a, a, a bird's eye view kind of third party image of what's happening. Whereas Hunter is in there. Like he gets evicted from his house at one point because they're like partying at his house all the time and, and firing guns out the window. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the funny thing was, is uh, he said that one wasn't even the hell's angels. It was like some lawyer or something that he had at his house. And there was some wild, wild <laughs> night where the hell's angels weren't even there. And somebody fired a gun out the back window or something. But yeah, but it's it's so it's not just like, oh, I went and saw and this is what I saw and this is how I would describe it. It's I lived this. Obviously not a full patch member because that would be a much deeper adventure and probably would end up with some things that you can't put in a book, you know? <laughs> yeah. For uh, to avoid some uh you know, jail time and what else? You know, it's a kind of an interesting progress to get into a full patch member, but uh, it's as close as you can get without being a Hell's Angels member. Yeah, you know? and he was even riding a motorcycle. I think he was riding a BSA during this time. Which is funny because he talks about how that actually almost damaged his reputation. Yeah. Because it wasn't a Harley, yeah. you know? But then he gets kind of some bonus points back when he crashes it and splits his head open. <laughs> You know, they're like, oh, you're not riding a Harley. And then he crashes it and splits his head open. They're like, oh, you're all right. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and that's something that Hunter talks about with these members in this era of the Hells Angels Motorcycle Club is like it was almost sort of like you you had to spend some time in an emergency room. Like that was that was sort of something it wasn't necessarily like a prerequisite. And it's not something that you had to like continually do. But like almost any one of these guys that Hunter had interacted with, they had spent time in an emergency room for something, whether it be a motorcycle crash, whether it be like a bar brawl, whether it be like, you know, gunshot wounds. Like at one point, like uh, it's almost like a sort of like a footnote in one part. It's like one guy got like shot in the spine and was like paralyzed. Like, and you're like, oh, like these guys are living a wildly different life, you know, where it's just like a normal happenstance to end up in the hospital. I I felt a lot like it's kind of how people view military members when you know they have done a tour or haven't done a tour you know people look at it differently like if you've seen combat it's kind of like a rite of passage which is these guys kind of look at it the same way there's like oh there's motorcycle riders 
and then there's us and we we live this separate lifestyle because you know we do these vulgar things to piss off the squares as they would say or you know we crash our bikes or we end up in the hospital from fights or whatever it is they kind of set themselves apart with this like reoccurring violence that just becomes so common with them yeah and like at one point hunter is like describing sort of like the customization of like a harley 74 right and it's something that you know you and i or anyone else that's sort of been around or watched tv in like the last 20 years we came up with like west coast choppers and jesse james and orange county choppers and that sort of like soap operaization of like custom motorcycle uh, construction and building and what have you right right but like when you're if you're in like nine if you're in the bookstore in 1966 and you picked up this book it unless you saw firsthand what some of these motorcycles would have looked like you know this would be the first time where you actually have somebody like telling you like the breakdown right and so i'm in one part of the book like hunter's describing like the you know raking out uh the front forks and you know like the really thin you know almost like a bicycle tire on the front and how there's like coats and coats and coats of like custom paint and chrome where you can put anywhere it's like stuff that is just like oh that's just normal motorcycle customization right yeah. and how like back in the day it might cost three thousand dollars to customize the bike and that, <laughs> that was a lot of money yeah and then like we were just talking about you know these wild bastards would just like crash it the first time they would like go to take it out and you're like what you know yeah. like and it was it wasn't like you would imagine among your friends, your friend gets a new car or does up his car and he crashes at the first ride. You're like, ah, oh, you fucking idiot. With them, it was like it. They like it gives you respect. You know, they're like, yeah. you went out and wrecked this bike. Like, ah, you're so awesome. You know, it's like, it's it's an entirely different world from what you would normally, you know, how you would normally view these groups, right? Especially like your average motorcycle rider. Like, the angels obviously take a ton of pride in their bikes, but. For most riders, it would be shameful. You'd you'd be embarrassed. You wreck your bike. Whereas these guys are like, it's they're like excited by it. They're like, oh yeah, that one wreck I had, and they're sharing stories of crashes and stuff. You yeah. Know? Like, and he talks about how it kind of comes with the riding style, right? Like these guys have adopted this style of riding for these bikes because, let's be honest, like raking out the front end on these bikes, putting a pizza cutter front wheel and tire on, these aren't performance modifications no. this is a hindrance you know you messing with the steering geometry like that is a nightmare it's so sketchy like i have a bike that has a bit of a rake to the front end and like even just sitting on the bike feeling the way the front tire turns a little bit like that it you can it the way it shifts the bike it just doesn't you know your handling goes out the window and these guys are riding them like a bat out of hell you know the way they ride is constantly on the verge of an emergency scenario, you know, it's just all like, the time. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, whenever they're leaving the bar, whenever they're going to this clubhouse or that, like they're always riding it. There's like no, yeah, and like as a group, you know, <laughs> like multiple times in this book, there's like group pileups because they like rip over a corner and there's a car stopped there or somebody lost control because they're going way too fast for one of these machines into a hard corner. Like these are essentially how you would imagine a dragster. You know, yeah. like lots of power to the back end, only enough front tire to try to keep it straight, but not <laughs> enough to try to turn. And they're just on it all the time. And that was this, you know, it's kind of a metaphor for for the, the members of the Hells Angels themselves. You know, they're just always on the edge and loud and fast and living this crazy aggressive lifestyle and 
just on the verge of control and largely popping over the edge. Yeah, like I'd say like quite frequently. Well, and that's something that Hunter kind of gets to in the book is how there's like this sort of like man and machine union, right? And this is something that isn't really new to us, but in 66, like it would be kind of like almost uh, almost like a progressive way to think of a man and machine, right? And Hunter like even describes like there's uh, like a, an absolute control or like an absolute mastery that these members of the Hells Angels have over their motorcycle because of the customization there. They've, they've put their hands on every aspect of their motorcycles, right? And so they might be a fuck up in any other realm of their life, whether it comes to like, you know, the law, keeping a regular job, just like paying your bills and just like trying to get by. Every other aspect of their job is they're they're a fuck up, right? Yeah. Except when it comes to their mastery over their motorcycle, right? And this is something like just to sort of like give us a bit of a throwback to the beginning of our season. This is something that, that Hammond actually talks about in A Short History of the Motorcycle, right? Is there's that sort of connection between the rider and the motorcycle, right? And this is something that Hunter S. Thompson identifies with the Hell's Angels. Like there's... There's something else that's happening here. Like there's more of a connection than just being a proficient rider. Like there's, there's like this union, right? Yeah. Well, and you think about it, like even in, by today's standards, Harleys kind of have this reputation, you know, whenever you, somebody brings a Harley over, you always hear guys like somebody will make a joke about leaking oil or whatever. You'll even hear Harley guys say, if it's starting to drip, they're like, if it's leaking oil, there's still oil in it. You know, (laughs) like they kind of have this reputation for that. And, you know, so we're talking in the 60s, just the general standard for a bike's ability to travel long distances and be reliable would be much lower than it is now. Oh, so and you've got these guys riding big groups of these modified in a very sketchy manner motorcycles out to farms and clubhouses and whatever out of town and doing long rides like they say whenever there's a funeral, you know, there's no they don't have any rules on what happens if you don't make it to a member's funeral. Because everyone just makes it, yeah. you know? So people ride from like across the country, wherever they're from. So these guys are doing long rides. You have to be able to fix your bike. You know, like you'd be ridiculed for if you broke broke down somewhere and you're like, oh, I got to get a tow truck to come take my bike to the shop because I can't do this like minor fix myself on the road, you yeah. know? And I don't even think that's a choice that any of these men that Hunter was uh, rubbing shoulders with during this period would even entertain. For sure. Like I'm not... I'm going to call a mechanic like, no, you are the mechanic, right? You are the means to fix this motorcycle. There's no calling somebody. Maybe you call another guy in the club, right? Like, oh, hey, come help me lift this up so I can get the, like something in that regard. But you're not, you're not just taking this to the bike shop down the street, right? Yeah, they have, they have a pride in there. Like you said, their man and machine connection. It's, it's almost it's almost what brings all these guys together, you know, like there's two major things, this man machine connection and just the general acceptance of violence regularly, you know, it's just, and they, they just draw people in for that. It's a different type of human being, but they've found their place and their people, you know, there's a lot of sort of American historical context from this era. Like it's in the middle of the sixties. Right. And if you've even, consumed a shred of pop culture you know that like that's a pretty big era in probably north american 
culture as a whole, right? And so there's a lot that's there's a lot of context that's sort of like fenced around this book, right? That and I think Hunter does a pretty good job of laying as much sort of framework in the terms of how the Hell's Angels were reported on by the media, because that was sort of like one of the big catalysts in why this motorcycle club, this motorcycle gang, got the notoriety that it did. It's how they were portrayed in the media. And then on the flip side, it almost became like this like self-fulfilling prophecy, like because then these club members would start to sort of believe in the hype in these newspaper clippings, right, that they're reading about themselves. And they're like, oh, like that's that's how we are. Right. And so then you you always have like it seemed like there was always this notch up like, oh, if the media reported it this way, then, well, we have to be obviously crazier than that. And then the media reports on that. And then you have to be even more crazier or more outlandish or more violent than that. Right. right. And it just builds on it. Right. And so a lot of the first half of this book and you had touched on it at the beginning of this episode is like you don't really get a sense for Hunter's personality because he's doing kind of what a journalist should and he's sort of setting the groundwork and then when you get into like the the latter part of the book you you really have a solid understanding of why the hell's angels ended up in this sort of like sphere of like infamy than if it was just like he really does a good job of sort of like explaining how how we got here right for sure and just some important context like the hell's angels were founded in 1948 in California. So this all went down early 60s. So you're looking at it's only been 10 to 15 years. It's not a long time, especially with the way media traveled back then. It's not as instant as it is now. So nowadays, people have a pretty solid understanding, or at least they believe they have a pretty solid understanding of what motorcycle gangs are. You see them, especially Alberta, you see them pretty regularly. It's not that often you'll see full patch guys going down the highway, but you do see it from time to time. Downtown Calgary, you'll see it occasionally. You see them in a pub from time to time. And we kind of understand what they are. You know, there's been enough media on them now. People kind of go about their lives. You know, if you hear there's going to be Hells Angels in town, you don't panic. You know, we kind of know what's happening. But when this was being written, the idea of a motorcycle gang like this, it was new. You know, people didn't really know what to expect. And so the media was going crazy. Like how often you barely ever hear about the Hells Angels in the news now. Occasionally, if there's a big gathering in some town, you might hear about it. But you hear about it after the fact. Whereas in this era, you know, if word got out that there was going to be a rally in some town, you know, some of these times, like the Bass Lake scenario, word got out to the town ahead of time. And the like the civilians were armed they had like their own little militia. There was a huge police force there ahead of time. And the media would be writing these crazy articles. Like it was like there was barbarians coming. Yeah. Like, you know, like they're going to come pillage and burn the town down. Because Hunter was talking about in one of these small towns, they mounted like a machine gun on top of the drugstore. The Hells Angels are coming. We better arm ourselves. And you're like, what? They put a fucking machine gun? On the drugstore? Like, you know? Like- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because people didn't really understand. You know, nowadays... You know, how many times are you on the highway and you get stuck behind a convoy of 15, 20 bikes? It's pretty common. Yeah. You know, whereas, I mean, not necessarily gang members, motorcycle club members, but you see these big groups pretty often. Whereas back then, this was a new thing. You know, motorcycle hobbyists weren't as common and uh, motorcycle gangs certainly weren't common at all. So there was this 
you know, kind of this like barbarian Viking mentality about it, where it was like a, it was like a mythological creature almost. And you're like, oh, they're coming and we don't know what they're going to do. And these, you know, these crazy stories that start spreading about, you know, rapes and burning towns down and attacking police officers and stuff, which is kind of funny because they talk about it in the first half of the book when he's talking about like the Lynch report and stuff like that articles that have been written about the Hells Angels and the members themselves kind of comment about how funny it is that most of the time when the media writes negative things about the angels, it's almost always false. That's not to say that the angels are great people and they don't do anything wrong. The members themselves even say they're like, we do all kinds of terrible shit all the time. Why don't you just write the things we actually did? Yeah. But they'd like hype up these stories that never really happened or that were all rumor. And they're like, you're not even getting it right. Like, we do bad shit all the time. Why don't you just write about the actual bad shit that we do? Well, and the the one story that was sensationalized that really put uh, the media spotlight on the Hells Angels was the Monterey rape, right? Where there was this, allegedly, there was some teenage girls that showed up in a bar that were allegedly gang raped by members of the Hells Angels. And I think there was like four or five of them that Hunter was uh, closely sort of... Uh, I guess, hanging out with, right? Yeah. And then it turned out later, like, the bails were set so low that the angels were like, well, clearly they don't have anything on us because we didn't do anything wrong. And the case was uh, eventually thrown out because, like, one witness or one alleged victim couldn't actually identify anyone, right? Yeah, she just, like, they rolled up with the cops and identified, like, a bunch of people. And, like, some of them turned out they weren't even there. And then some witnesses, like, others, you know people that happened to be there that weren't necessarily members had a completely different story. But these things come up quite a bit because the Hells Angels have this interesting policy, not really written down, but just kind of a an understood policy. They're, at these events, the sex and the violence is all very similar. You know, <laughs> there's kind of this like all on one sort of thing, which is... Yeah, you know, it doesn't really fit the way the world tends to look at it. You know, for you and me, most people in the world, if two people are getting in a fight, every you stand back. The two guys fight. When it's done, it's done. Of course, it's not always how it pans out, but most people see it that way. Two guys are fighting. You either break it up, but you don't join the fight. Whereas the Hells Angels have this, this understanding where if you pick a fight with one member everybody else that's there that's a member is getting in on the fight and you're just going to get jumped by yeah. all of them. There's none of this one-on-one thing. It's if you fight one of us, you fight all of us. And at these big rallies, it's kind of the same with the sex, you know? <laughs> like if a girl comes in and she's hitting on some Hells Angels member, maybe a couple of them, and she wants to hook up with some guy, they end up going to the back room, she hooks up with that guy, and then one of the other guys comes in and She's like, oh, yeah, okay, cool, we're doing this. And then, like, she'll hook up with that guy. And then after all of that, she starts to realize that this is just, you know, this guy's going to leave, some other guy's going to come in, and then that guy's going to leave, and some other guy comes in. So it's not rape the way you would traditionally understand it, where somebody is, like, taken and forced into something. It's a girl, it's most of the time, it ends up being a girl that was like, oh, I want to sleep with this guy or maybe these two guys, and then doesn't really understand what they're getting into. And at a certain point, they go, I didn't mean to do this. This isn't kind of what I signed up for. And then it becomes a rape kind of thing, you know, because it's like, well, it wasn't what they originally understood it to be, which gets tricky from a legal standpoint, because at that point, 
all the witnesses that were there saw this girl that came in and she was like making out and basically fucking this guy on the pool table. And then they went to the back room and then, you know, it's hard for everybody to say, well, she clearly got raped. So most of these scenarios, that's how it pans out. You know, the cops get told of a rape. They come in and do an investigation. Most of the witnesses are like, to us, that's not what we saw. We saw a girl come in, pick out a guy. Everything was going good. They started making out. They went and did their thing. And what happened after that, they don't really know. And the Hell's Angels in their mind certainly don't see that as rape. That's just how they live their lives, you know? And so... It's a very different social structure than for sure. regular sort of fraternity, right? Well, and this is a good time to talk about the mamas. Oh, yeah. You know? So they kind of have... Like, there's mamas and there's old ladies. An old lady would, you know, would be considered a, more of a girlfriend or a wife. That's like, they're with somebody. That's it. Off limits. You know, you're not making a move on them. But then they And have, this is something that everyone understands. Yes, for sure. And would be, you know, there would be some punishment if somebody was to cross those lines. Whereas a mama is someone that kind of hangs around and is just at the clubs, is on runs. And it's not... It, you know, this is all consensual with this. Like, they acknowledge that they're a mama. You know, they come to the runs, and they kind of know that they're just there. To, they're like a band groupie, you know? Right. These groupies that are always going on tour with these rock stars, and they're regularly sleeping with the rock stars, and they understand that this is what's happening. And in the beginning, it's exciting for them. They're doing this. They're living this life. And the mamas, it's kind of the same way. But they say that doesn't usually... There's no full-time mamas. You know, they kind of come in and it's fun. They're with the angels. They're going on rides. They're at the clubhouse all the time. They're hooking up with these guys. But they say usually two to three years, they're kind of like, I, I'm kind of seeing myself as a piece of property now. I got to move on. And I think usually they're hoping that it's going to become an old lady. You know, that's kind of the way they're going. And if it doesn't go that way, you kind of just become a mama for life. And uh, I'm sure it's not great for the self-esteem. Well, and Hunter uses the phrase like some of these women have like bitter wisdom, you know, and that's I think that's what you're getting at is when they realize like, oh, this is this is what I am. Yeah. To this gang. Right. And that like and I think you're right, like being described as a piece of property is sort of unfortunately how this poor young woman is getting treated like. Right. Right. But again, like most of society would would look at that in a negative way. But from a legal standpoint, this is all consensual and these are all choices that are made. Cause it's not like a girl comes in and becomes a mama and they go, no, 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 you have to come with us. It's always, if you don't want to be a mama, just stop coming to the clubhouse, go on with your life, do your things. They're not going to go track this person down and make them come along. But it's, you know, it's people get hyped up. The hell's angels were kind of like rock stars in this era and people live that way. You know, how many times do you meet an older lady nowadays that did that with, you know, the Grateful Dead or whoever it was? They just follow in these bands. And, you know, down the road you grow up and you kind of grow out of it and you move on. Some of them become uh, an old lady. Some of them don't. But it's interesting. There's a section where he talks about the way the old ladies view the mamas. That's right. You know, there's yeah. kind of this like holier than thou. Even if they had been a mama at one point, they're like, well, I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm a, almost a member now, yeah. you know? And they talk about, like, some girls would like, get property of Hell's Angels tattooed on them and stuff. Like, oh yeah, it's crazy to think about this, this relationship, the foundation of it all and how they get there. And the one thing that really made me uncomfortable with it is you can tell the Hell's Angels aren't really concerned about, you know, are you 18 or not? 
Like oh, there's been yeah. things mentioned a couple times at parties where they're like, oh, I picked up this 17 year old on the way here or whatever. And it's, that's kind of where it started to be like, okay, you know, you can see that like you can clearly see that the way society views, you know, relationships is absolutely not how they view it at all. There's been a lot of writing on sort of like the anthropological or like the sociological sort of like studies that have been done on the Hell's Angels, right? And I think like you start to, when you're reading a book like Hell's Angels, A Strange and Terrible Saga by Hunter S. Thompson, you start to see where you're like, oh, there's something here that we didn't see in other sort of like social situations before and we need to know what's going on. Like it's very unique in the way that they're organizing themselves in sort of like it's 1960s American culture. Right. But they're not exactly organizing themselves in like this really wholesome way. You know what I mean? And I think that's where they get a lot of the interest from, right? When there's a lot of interest in the hell's angels. And I think that's why you see certain like television shows like sons of anarchy get so much, see so much popularity, right? Because you get a window into sort of like a social culture and a social social being that you just don't get in other other facets of life, right? And so I think that's that's where the draw is, right? And then like you were saying about how you kind of get a sense that these guys, right, and you know, they're they're really just fucking women indiscriminately. It doesn't matter if they're you know, 16, 17, 18, right? They're not waiting until this is quote unquote legal, right? Yeah. And they don't, they don't really have, I don't get a sense that they, they feel bad about it. You know what I mean? I, yeah. I mean, on the contrary, it almost seems like they enjoy the fact that society looks at this and goes, what the fuck? Yeah. You know, the, the thing that really drove that home for me is the swastikas. Oh, like yeah. they always on their trucks, on their bikes. Some of them have them tattoos. They have swastikas on everything. Now, nowadays, and even any time since World War II, really, you wouldn't dare wear a swastika unless you were a self-proclaimed Nazi and you believed in all of that, right? Whereas none of the Hell's Angels that he talks to in the book really believe in Nazism. Like, yeah. they they openly admit that like we just put them on the bikes and shit because people don't like it. It makes people stay away and it makes people scared. They're not doing it to represent, you know, the Nazi party or anything that they stand for because they don't even agree with it. They're just doing it because people don't like it and we want to piss off the squares. Like, that's the whole point. You'll take on this, you know, extremely negative publicity just so that people are afraid. You know, it's kind of wild. Like, it's everything they do, they're just living this life to be aggressive and intimidating and scary to people. And, uh, and it's, it's kind of for show in a way, you know, like you see, they talk about racism within the group and it seems like nothing that they do is really set in stone in any way other than like we said, be scary. So when they talk about racism within the group, it sounds like most of the members do kind of look down on black people specifically, but yet there's an entire group, an entire motorcycle club of black members in Oakland that in one part of the book, he talks about, they show up at the same club and they're like friends. Yeah. It's not tight friends, but it's, they have a relationship and they hang out together. So it's not blanket racism. It's this, it almost feels like they're like most of the time they're racist just to sound like bad people. 
just to, again, piss off the squares. But then there's times where they'll hang out with this entirely black motorcycle club from Oakland and be buddies and plan rallies and whatever it is. So it's not unanimous. It's just for show for the public. We're going to take whatever awful stereotype that we can get and just run with it. Yeah, because I think uh, Hunter mentioned a couple of times like they would dye their beards purple and wear like fake nose rings because it just freaked everyone out. Like what? You have this crazy fucking purple Santa beard and a nose ring. That's too much for a square. (laughs) The one that really took me by surprise like, and I mean, you know, I've seen some shows about the Hells Angels and whatever and read some books and some articles and whatever. The one that I had never heard of before that really shocked me was the kissing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like when you think of the Hells Angels, you would tend to think of them, you know, this like macho group of leathered up bike riders with the tattoos and they like violence. You would think of them as mostly kind of homophobic, right? That's I think most people would assume that they're not. There's probably no openly gay members of the Hells Angels. But yet they talk about in the book how if there's like someone's doing an interview, one of the other guys will just go up and make out with them because it (laughs) freaks people out. You know, I would imagine if one of the guys decided to try to marry another man, it's probably not going to be taken well. I don't really think that meets the standards of their group, but yet it's not uncomfortable for them at all and hunter even loses some you know some points with the hell's angels because one of them i think it was tiny comes up and like jumps into his arms and like tries to make out with him and he's like weird about it and they're like what the fuck man why are you being weird about this and it's like because you're this six foot three bearded sweaty man and like i didn't think you guys are cool just making out with dudes but again and they're like talking about making out with tongue like in front of cameras and shit not because they're into it just because it freaks out normal people. Because it's, it's a very, like, less than half a page Hunter talks about this. And I remember because I was rereading this portion and he's he's talking about, like, how, you know, people want to label them as, like, homosexuals. Of, like, these sadomasochistic, uh, like, homosexuals, right? Like the the leather daddy types, right? And <laughs> yeah. he Hunter basically dismisses it as, like, it doesn't matter. Because what they do is what they do. It doesn't matter, right? And he kind of like takes whatever sort of like argument some outside observer might want to make at the Hells Angels at this time and be like, it's not really the point. The point is they're riding like chromed out Harley Davidsons with purple beards, right? They got swastikas on and they're making out with each other. Like what, whether or not they're homosexuals or not, it's like you have to look at what they're doing and that's what they're yeah. doing. And that's the important part, right? Yeah, it's and it's largely all, as we've said, like standing out is kind of their goal. Yes. Stand out, keep people away. But it's funny because like the Bass Lake run, for example, Barger. So we should say uh, Sonny Barger is the current president, was the president through all of this. He kind of works with the police officer at Bass Lake, the, the police chief. Because there's this like militia of citizens there that are like armed and they're like farm tough you know these aren't they mentioned these aren't just city people you know the angels would go in and fuck up city people all the time right but these are small town farm tough hillbillies like these are not the people you want to get into a brawl with especially not when they're all you know standing together and armed so the police chief to try to kind of calm the situation works with barger to kind of keep the angels over here and you know we'll find a way to get you beer or whatever but you can't come into the town And it's funny because you've got all of these 
members that typically try to scare people away and freak people out on the news and whatever. And they all want to go into the town and be around the people, you know, like it's so hard to keep them out of the town because it's like, it's not that they just want to be left alone. It's that they want bad publicity. It's so weird. Like, I don't, I don't want you to just give us our little area to do what we want to do. It's like, we want to be trouble is what it is. We're not doing it necessarily just to like have our group and do things we like to do. We want to go out and stir up shit. Even if it would undoubtedly people are going to get hurt, you know, their own members included, like it would be a massacre going into a small town of armed farmers, but they, it's like Barger has to work with, with the, the sheriff the whole time to try to like, where can we go for beer? Like, what can we do? How do we stay away from these other campsites so that it isn't just a riot? It might not have been the Bass Lake run that Thompson's reporting on, but it could have been. I'm, there's a couple different runs that he sort of uh, writes about in the book, but the original camp spot, right? They're like, yep, you can, guys can go and camp up there. And then they ride up there and they're like, well, this is just like a patch in a forest on the side of a mountain. Like this, uneven ground, no yeah, nearby water. Yeah, like, yeah. Obvi- like this is not going to work. And so it became like this thing like, no, no, like you need, we need to ha- find a space where we can fucking drink our beer, fuck the women and do what we're going to do or we will just fucking pillage this town. Yeah, and they kind of set up like a police barricade too. Like they set a curfew. Like after 10 p.m., nobody gets out. Like, the roads are blocked off by cops. You guys are staying here. So they tell everyone at the party, they're like, if there's any civilians in here, like, by 10 o'clock, we'll let you out. But after that, if you're there, you're staying there. And there ends up being some young kid that was there, just kind of like, I think he got got lost on the highway or something. Like, he had some friends looking to pick him up on the highway, and he ends up in this Hells Angels rally. (laughs) And the cops, like, don't want to let him out. And Hunter's trying to figure out a way to, like, smuggle him past the barricade and shit. And, like... (laughs) Yeah, it's crazy, man. Like just these clashes with the police over and over in these scenarios and the way they have to navigate this. And I think having someone like Sonny Barger at the helm kind of smooths a lot of that over. You know, there's a lot of times where even though he obviously looks down on police and isn't a fan, he kind of finds a way to make it work. Like we're not, I'm not going to let you tell us what we can and can't do, but we understand that you know, it's going to be a shootout if we end up in town, you know, and how can I keep my guys, make sure they still get to do what they want to do and party and get wild. But how do I keep my guys from ending up in a, you know, World War Three in this small town, you know? Because there was no illusions about the violence that the Hells Angels were willing to commit, right? Like a lot of these guys is like carried around lengths of chain to like whip somebody if they had to, right? And there was like, they... Uh, later in the book, like Hunter's talking about like some of the, they almost have like private arsenals, you know, when yeah. you think of like all the hunting knives, the handguns, the the rifles, the and they even speak about how like, um, I, it might have even been Sonny Barger had like a brand new AR-16 that was just issued to like the military, right? Like they had guns, right? And so there's no, there's no illusions about the violence that, the, the potential for violence that could have erupted in a situation like that. Yeah, absolutely. And it was interesting to see the way it kind of fluctuates. Like there was some chapters that weren't quite as crazy, you know, like they weren't getting as much bad publicity. Publicity. They were kind of just a group of guys that like riding motorcycles. Maybe they have been a little more aggressive at times, but 
they were like looked down upon by the other chapters that were more violent and more aggressive and getting bad pub- publicity because they, you know, they weren't getting enough new members and they weren't getting in the media enough. They were kind of just hanging out, riding motorcycles and doing motorcycle stuff. But then at the same time, there was a whole period of time. I can't remember how long it was, a few years where the Hells Angels figured they should try to get some like somewhat good publicity because, you know, you don't want to be going to gas stations and getting denied or, you know, you're going into a place and the owner is ready with guns and stuff like that, you know? So they made these business cards <laughs> and they would like, if they're driving down the road and somebody's broken down, cause like, as we said, their mechanical skills are phenomenal. They're fixing bikes and trucks and shit all the time. A lot of them work in motorcycle shops or automotive shops or in shipping yards and whatever they're hands on guys. So they would make these cards. And if you're riding down the road and you see somebody broken down, they would almost always pull over and help that person, get them gas, fix the vehicle, whatever it need to be. Cause they always have tools on them themselves because they ride fucking Harley Davidson's that break down all the time. <laughs> and so they would fix the person's vehicle and give them a card. And it would say like, you've just been helped out by, you know, a member of the Oakland chapter or whatever it is. And it was like a good publicity run, which is, it's so weird, man. Like, I always felt like reading this book, there's never this like, this is what we stand for and this is the direction we're going. They're like, oh, we're always trying to get all this negative publicity and riding into places and fucking with the cops and the civilians. But then also at the same time, you know, we're going to help bystanders on the road with their cars broken down and give them out these business cards to try to like, you know, get a little bit of points in the good books. You know, it's like they're all over the place. They're just wild cards, man. And I, I think that's sort of part of the frustration that I can imagine with law enforcement or even sort of like state prosecutors when trying to navigate the possibility that the Hell's Angels are coming to town for a run, right? Because you're right. They don't have a manifesto. It's not written down. Mm -hmm. I think there's certain things that Hunter S. Thompson remembers seeing like scrawled on the walls, like these sort of like quotes from like poems, if you can call them that. Yeah, there's sort of like things like that, but it's not like they have like, okay, this is what we are. This is the paperwork, right? And so it is very almost sort of... uh, disarming and jarring in moments when you hear about things like the business cards and stuff like that. And then on the flip side, you know, they're, they're selling drugs to like 15 year old kids and then they have like automatic weapons, you know, they may or may not be raping women on some of these runs. Right. So you're kind of like, well, there's, there's so much sort of like contradictory sort of like acts that there's, there's no, it's, it's irreconcilable. Like you can't, there's no sort of like nice, shiny, or even like a gruff component that you can really extract from all this because it's a very fluid, it, it, the way that it's depicted in Hunter's book, like the club is like sort of like fluid in whatever way that it needs to be, right? All these scenarios they talk about, like they'll have a clubhouse of sorts, you know, there's one pub they tend to go to a lot and they'll frequent it. They've got a good relationship with the owner and it's all going smooth. And the owner kind of doesn't, really understand the media anymore it's like why why do these guys have such a bad reputation for sure they're animals they're partying like crazy but they're paying for their beers and whatever and then one thing will go wrong and they'll get kicked out and then they'll just come back and burn the bar down yeah it's like you it's like every time they come to town you're just rolling the dice you might get a cool group of motorcycle guys that just want to drink beers and listen to loud music you might get absolutely complete anarchy and your whole place might get smashed and with this 
idea they have of like all on one, you can't get involved. You know, if you have an altercation with one angel, you're getting stomped by like 10 of them, you know, and they have a situation in a bar one night where, you know, the bar that they regularly frequent where these two black guys come in and one of the angels at the bar is talking to this black guy and he's buying him beers and it seems to be going good. And then I think the black guy orders another beer on the angels tab and that, and it just goes completely south from there. There's an argument and then there's just a brutal fight where there's like 15 guys beat up these two black guys and it's just like unreal. And then of course the angels in the world they live in, they're like, well, violence brings more violence. And they're like dead set that there's just going to be this like army of black dudes that comes to their bar. And for like a month, they have like ammunition and supplies put on the roof. They're on the roof. Yeah. Like, with like laying there with guns and shit. Yeah. Like, like uh, cause Hunter talks about like how he went up there one day to go chat with Sonny Barger and they got like a thermos of coffee because they're waiting. They're yeah. waiting on the roof of this building. For like a month. Yeah. And then they, they said they went and like loaded, they put a bunch of guns on their backs and just rode their bikes like through the black neighborhood, I guess you would call it, of the area where like they kind of assumed this is where this retaliation is going to come from. And they just ride down Main Street with assault rifles on their backs, riding on their motorcycles oh, as like- this like show of force. It's kind of like, it must be like living in a loony bin, you know? <laughs> like some days he had them partying at his house for months before he got evicted and just hanging out and they're buddy-buddy and whatever. And then the next day it's chaos, you know? He's talking about the first article he wrote before the book came out. They're like all of his buddies and whatever. And then somebody just kind of like loosely makes a comment like, oh yeah, you know, uh, if you if we don't like the article you write, we're going to come back and burn your fucking house down. <laughs> yeah, like you feel like these are your buddies, but there's also this constant threat of violence that could just happen at any time without really any solid reason, just because it's what they like. It's really like a like a mob mentality almost, right? You know, it's like, okay, this is the this is the direction of the impetus, like we're all going in that direction. And so there's really no sense of the individual in this club like the individual just sort of gets like assumed by the group right Mm -hmm. and there's there's moments where hunters even talking about how they almost have like this sort of like communist sort of tendency right where it's like yeah if you if you have then you share right like that's uh i don't i can't i'm gonna bastardize this this uh like sort of communist sort of like mantra but it's like you know those who have can share each according to their needs or whatever however the fuck that went right like whatever Karl marx wrote <laughs> nailed it yeah <laughs> he'd be proud <laughs> but it's it's funny though because even that is loose you know like yeah so at the bass lake run they get hunter to go buy all of this beer they all pool their money and they're like you got to do the beer run. You got to go into town because if we send a couple members in, it's going to be chaos. Now let's just pause there for a second. Hunter understood in that moment, like if he fucks this up, shit's getting fucked up. Like yeah. he was there in his personal car, right? He had photography equipment, right? He had uh, audio recording equipment. Like if he fucked this up, like this could have been the end of him. Like he would have ended up in the hospital from a fucking beatdown. Yeah, it or wasn't dead like, or dead, know? right? Like yeah, you could really see his situational awareness shine through here because he talks about not even just if he fucked it up, but he's like in these small towns, beer prices are probably higher. 
you know? That's right. And so these guys have all pooled their money together and they might seem like it's just anarchy right now, but they probably have, because the beer is an important part, especially since they know the police <laughs> barricades going up at 10, they want to have enough beer. So he's like, these guys are used to buying beer for a certain amount of money. And if I go to town with this 300 bucks or whatever it is, which is a lot of money for back then, if I go to town with this and come back with less beer than they expect, I'm not going to be able to convince them that I didn't just steal some of their money. Yeah. And they're not just going to search me for the money. They're just going to kick the fuck out of me. So he goes, I need two members to come with me because you need to see in case I go to town and end up getting arrested and end up in jail. I don't want to end up in jail for the night and then come out and you guys think I ran off with your money and I get shit kicked or I don't want to go in and buy beer and it's more expensive than you expect and I come back with the beer just to come back to my own funeral you know like you guys need to be there to see the bill see how much this is going to cost and kind of vouch for me but it's interesting when they get there because he talks about there was this mother and her child there that had heard that the Hells Angels are coming to town and specifically went to the liquor store to wait just to see Hells Angels. Like you're going to a zoo and he's, here's the kid like, oh, when are they getting here? And he's like, what is wrong with this, with this woman? Like <laughs> you've brought your like 10 year old or whatever they are to this place where the media has told you basically barbarians are coming to burn the fucking town down. And it's like, there's this whole group of people that are from other areas that have come to camp there specifically just because they want to see Hell's Angels. Like, it's it's this wild, like, half the people left the town, the other half armed themselves in pre preparation for war, and then people just came from miles away just to, like, witness them. And that shows you, like, just how misunderstood they were at the time. People didn't even grasp the concept of what these... It's like aliens. They're like, we want to see. It's like, well, it's just bearded guys on motorcycles, man. Like, And they end up asking them all these questions. Not reporters, just random people. Like, hey, what do you how do you feel about this and whatever? And they're just giving them whatever answer is going to piss them off the most, you know? But it's interesting to see with their clear hate for the police. You know, they talk about all these rallies, guys are just getting arrested and shouting at the cops and all the times they're on the road and getting in fights with police officers or, you know, almost getting in fights with police officers. It's like there's this immense hate for authority and then there's the way things panned out with the war in Vietnam. So all of the protesters, you know, notoriously all these left-wing protesters having rallies against the war. And the angels would regularly go to these events on the side of the police officers and fight protesters because they like looked down on them for not supporting you know, the government's choice to go to war in Vietnam. Yeah, because Hunter says they viewed it as un-American. Yeah. Which is a lot of the thing. I guess the, they would picture themselves as the most American. It's weird to see the way they're just like anarchy and chaos and bad publicity. They obviously don't support authority or the government in so many different ways. You know, they're always just trying to find ways to like cheap the government out of money on their jobs, do cash jobs, not have to pay taxes, you know, like not have to pay bail and whatever they can do. But yet, when the war broke out and the protests started, they were like on the side of the police and they even offered to like be a kind of like mercenary physical force. Yeah. Sonny Barger wrote Lyndon B. Johnson and was like, hey, we'll go to Vietnam. 
We'll yeah. be your gorilla fucking. Yeah, we'll know? send a group of angels to be gorilla fighters. Sent, in Vietnam. sent a letter, and then like Hunter sort of remarks, like Lyndon B. Johnson kind of like missed an opportunity here, right? Like, yeah. Well, maybe. <laughs> if I was Lyndon B. Johnson in that case, you, like, how do you look at that? It's probably not going to be great publicity, you know. Like, oh, we're joining sides with these motorcycle hooligans that are just viewed as two-wheeled chaos, you know, and rapists and whatever. You don't exactly want to be seen as partnering up with them. And then on top of that, you send those guys over there. You got to send them to training. So you're arming and militarizing these gang members. (laughs) And then you're sending them over there and like, what's the chance that they're following the rules of engagement? You know, there's probably going to be some fucking war crimes. And if you're the guy that sent motorcycle gang members to (laughs) Vietnam armed them, trained them, and then they committed massive war crimes over there. That's not a good Probably luck. not getting reelected, you know? You make a, a very good observation about sort of the Hells Angels aligning themselves with the police, with the authority figures to counter-protest against sort of like that Berkeley sort of leftist liberal scene, right? And there's actually a, a party that some of these angels attend. I believe it's uh, Ken, uh, I want to say Ken Keasley, uh, it's it's an author. He wrote uh, One Who Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which they made into a film with Jack Nicholson, right? Right. So very, um, so I guess, well-known author. And then they start, this is like sort of something that I forgot about uh, after my first reading. This is the second time I've read this book. Is they start rubbing shoulders with like Allen Ginsberg, right? And Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac, or Jack Kerouac wrote like On the Road and like, uh, and the hippos were boiled in their tank and Big Sur and that sort of thing. Allen Ginsberg was like sort of, he was an author and a poet, but like they're very much sort of like these left sort of uh, leaning writers that sort of shape like the beat generation that sort of preceded this era, right? And so the angels are like sort of converting with like these, these sort of very prominent like American writers. And then there's sort of like this, the switch. And then they're like, well, wait, 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 what? Now you're on. Now you're standing with the police? So it's very confusing as a reader, right? Because there's all these contradictions that you're just like, well, these guys just don't make sense. Yeah, and there's a there's a time where they talk about, they start going to these parties um, with these kind of leftist intellectuals, and that's where the Angels got introduced to LSD. Oh, yes. Because that's kind of the era, right? When you think about like mass LSD usage and whatnot. I mean, we're talking about, it wasn't even illegal yet. The- well, we're talking about the times of MK Ultra. You know, like the <laughs> CIA is dosing people with LSD because they, they think that the Russians are trying to use it for mind control. Like, this is the times when Operation Midnight Climax happened and all of that. You know, like LSD trials are happening. It's not illegal yet. People don't really understand it yet. And you've got these left wing intellectuals that are writing books and making movies and kind of expanding their mind to this, you know, this world, this more peaceful world that LSD kind of opens them up to where they're like, well, what if we don't have to have violence and we can just, you know, peace, love era, you know, that you kind of think about, you know, you kind of picture the Volkswagen van cruising around with a bunch of hippies just getting stoned. And the angels kind of come into that group and start doing LSD. And it, it kind of becomes a problem with them for a while. Because they were kind of more the amphetamine side, you know, the uppers, the speed and all of that, and just taking like crazy random pills. And then they get into the LSD world and it kind of does change some of the members. But like you said, they have this bond 
And then when the protests start with the war, that just breaks. Like they just are 100% against it. It's very strange to see the flip there. There's even like a plea from this Ginsburg guy, right? Like he uh, published his speech in like this one magazine or something like that. And he's essentially like, I think for him, and this is definitely something that you would need to read in like another book or sort of research in another way. I think he saw a different path for the Hells Angels. I think because he was so saturated in that sort of scene, let's say like the LSD scene, that I think he saw a different direction that that motorcycle club could have taken, mm. right? But, and I think there's this sort of like this plead by Allen Ginsberg is like, hey, it doesn't have to be this way, right? And then the angels are like, no, no, it has to be this way. Yeah, he was kind of like, he was an idealist, right? He was kind yeah. of convinced that like, oh, no, no, no. Like after the first clash of protesters and angels, he was kind of like, no, they just don't understand what we're trying to do yet. And once they do understand, they're going to be on our side. And the angels are like, no, <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> no, we're pretty hard set against this. But I think you hit the nail on the head early on when you said eventually the angels started to believe the hype. Yes. You know, they really do change. And you, it's interesting to see, like, in the beginning, the angels don't have a lot of interest in Hunter. He's kind of this, like, outsider, journalist. And they say a bunch of times, like, when they're at parties, every once in a while, somebody will just be like, I probably shouldn't even be fucking talking to you because you're a journalist. You know, he's in the thick of it. And then every once in a while, someone will remind him that, like, we could just beat you up right now. Or, like, why do you have that tape recorder? Like, there's some guys that just wouldn't associate with him because he has a tape recorder. You know, I think the closest thing anyone got to saying something nice about him was Sonny Barger once said, well, I don't know what he's writing, but he's good people, you know? Yeah. And then they would just regularly threaten him if he writes something wrong, they're going to burn his house down or fuck him <laughs> up, or like they'd make threats about his wife or whatever it was. So initially, it's Hunter with the interest in them and them not having an interest in him. And then you see this shift in the mentality where the angels are trying to get articles written about them, books written about them, movies made about them, and they're trying to make money off of it. And he sees the guys, like, they're taking on new nicknames and stuff, and they're kind of becoming their own superheroes, and it's changing the way the angels of this time are viewed and the way they view themselves. And Hunter kind of says that he lost interest in them at that point. Yeah. You know, where it's like, you're kind of falsifying who you are and turning away from this way that you lived your life because you're trying to be rock stars now or movie stars now trying to get this specific publicity and make money off of it. Whereas before they were just kind of like, as long as I got some beers and my bike, that's all I need. And like, fuck what everybody thinks, you know, I'm going to go piss off everyone and whatever. And then this shift happens where he says, he kind of talks about how the angels really missed an opportunity. Like there could have been a lot of money coming in from this, but this clash between their desire to get this publicity and this connection to this like, anarchy that they've lived in forever they burnt a lot of bridges and then kind of lost how they started off because of that and he just starts to drift away a little he's like i don't i don't feel it anymore i don't feel like there's something that they stand for they don't feel like this group of individualists like because they're not really like you said they're not really individual themselves but their group is so individual from the regular world and eventually they just kind of became, in Hunter's mind anyways, 
the way we see people on social media now, where you're like trying to portray an image. You know, you see a movie star and they play this role and you kind of envision them, envision them as that. And it's like, that might not even be their real accent. You know, like Hunter kind of sees them as they're trying to be this image of themselves when they actually used to just be themselves, you know, and they kind of lost that. There's a part of me that sort of got sad at that moment because I think, and this is sort of a book too, because it was written in 66, we already know that the Hells Angels are just marked as a criminal organization. There's no, like, if you even get a, uh, there's a rumor that there's someone that you may have met or rubbed shoulders with that might be a full patch member, like, you know that that guy, right, is into some fucking criminal shit. Like, that's just, that's where they end up, right? Yeah. It's the same sort of thing as, like, we know where Shay ends up in uh, Motorcycle Diaries. Like, we know that he ends up, you know, hanging out with Castro and essentially, you know, inciting a revolution in Cuba, right? Right. But in this book, like, of course, we kind of we kind of already know their future, right? And so if you sort of like, and I did my best, and it's very difficult to do to sort of like put, the, put on the horse blinders when it comes to outside information and just sort of read this book for what it is, you kind of feel, I did anyways, a little bit sad that, man, you saw the other way. And maybe that's what like Allen Ginsberg sort of saw, right? Like, and I think that's, I think I almost sympathize with him, even though he's not really like a central piece in this story, because you're just like, you guys had something here, right? And you fucked it up. Yeah. I think a lot of that comes from, like we were saying, there was no manifesto. It's not like, this is what we believe in. And this is what we're fighting for. It was just chaos and they just loved the chaos. But eventually that's going to, you know, it's going to get suppressed or it's going to burn down or something. You know, it kind of feels like the farmer who moves to the city and loses that country feel to him. You yeah. Know? And we see it now with, you know, if you look at the the Hells Angels in Canada, at least like they own businesses. They have kind of gone the way of an of a criminal organization you know, where the money is laundered through businesses and they have kind of a foothold in the business world now. And, uh, you know, that transition, of course, um, happened in 77, the Angels patched over in Canada. But like, that, you know, that's another 10 years after the book. Like the Angels are so small at that point that they've, you know, they're not even that far out of California. But eventually they do spread out. And you look at now, like uh, Mom Bouchard, uh, who I believe is the president of the Hells Angels in Canada over in Quebec, there's been a ton of court cases where they try to throw him in jail or do throw him in jail, but it's so hard to tie them to these crimes now because they're organized criminals. You know, they have businesses and that's kind of how it's tied in. They're kind of intertwined with society now and more organized, whereas in the time that Hunter's writing this book, when he first started spending time with them, he just saw them as like wild men, you know, like basically living out in the plains kind of thing. You don't fit into the way the world sees. And eventually they did kind of change and tie themselves in with society a little bit more. Obviously, like you said, you see a full patch member out in public and you're like, probably not going to fuck with that guy. That's probably right. also like I've sat down and had a beer with him here and there. If you're sitting at the wood and you're on the bike, you know, you stop in a pub somewhere, they're bellied up to the wood, you belly up to the wood, bikes come up, you talk for a bit. But you kind of understand that, like, I'm going to have this conversation and go my own way. Like, I'm not going to leave here and be like, hey, you want to ride to the next town? Because like you said, if you're riding down the highway and there's a full patch member, 
that guy is just automatically flagged. You know, you'll you'll see them get pulled over simply because they're flying the colors. And actually, there's a great example of that in the book. (laughs) One of the members gets pulled over and the cop goes, take off that fucking vest. But he's wearing a vest over a jacket. And the vest has the, they call it the death head, right? It's pretty notorious. Most people have seen it by now. He goes, take off that vest. He's like, you can't fly your colors here. So he takes off the vest and the cop takes it. And underneath the vest is a jacket with the death head. He goes, take off that fucking jacket. Takes off the jacket. Underneath that, he's wearing a t-shirt with the death head on it. And the cop finally gets pissed <laughs> off and uh, and just says, fuck it, take your stuff back, get the fuck out of here. But they mention that if he went one step further and made him take off the t-shirt, his entire back was tattooed with the Hells Angels death head. And it's just like, <laughs> it just they're just so determined to show this off and throw it in everybody's face, you know? I remember that part in the book and I chuckled like that's even on my first reading, like that was one sort of uh, uh, little vignette of, of Hunter's writing that I like remember quite clearly. Yeah. Yeah. There's interesting characters, you know, and, and the names they have, you know, like a huge bearded man named tiny or like Terry, the tramp or uh, there's like Charlie, the child molester. Like, you're like <laughs> yeah. wait, what? You know, yeah, <laughs> junkie John and like, <laughs> It's crazy they just the names these guys have and how they got them and and uh and their you know their patch system that they have like you'll wear certain patches for if you do certain drugs or like certain you know vulgar sexual acts you may have committed just to like put it out there like look I've done this shit and it's just they just wear it on their vest to show literally it off, you yeah know? they literally wear it right yeah, you know yeah and that uh that reminds me so there's uh, Hell's Angels president, I believe uh, it was in the fres- Fresco chapter, uh, Pretam Bobo, who was like a karate master. Now, when you say the phrase karate master, to me, that just sounds hilarious, right? Because like, I don't really take karate that seriously, but this is sort of like the MMA, like what MMA is today, like that's what karate was back in the day. And Hunter's talking about how like this guy named Bobo used to have like death matches, karate death matches. And you're like, what? And it was basically like, it was just sort of like this verbal agreement that like, you basically fucking fought one another until you couldn't. And if that meant that one guy died, then one guy died, right? And there's sort of like this this moment where Hunter's saying like how this journalist um, that he didn't really associate with was like reporting on like this alleged like karate death fight and how like the blood and the gore and like this journalist is basically fucking ran out of there terrified, right? And then eventually like the karate association had to get involved and be like, okay, you're not allowed to teach people karate anymore because you're fucking insane. Yeah, because like he did have his own gym and everything, right? And yeah. had competed and was like world class, like could have been one of the best and could have had this great path in something that he loved. But just this like cavalier outlook on violence and gore and blood just kind of burned the bridge down for him because people just they couldn't handle it you know it's like even if you look at the way we view violence now like boxing was definitely happening back then but there was this there's this weird almost gentleman's agreement to boxing whereas like if you were to take footage of an mma fight now and go back to that era and just show guys like kneeing each other in the face, you know, doing an arm bar until you break the arm. Like 
it would be considered brutal back then. So to have this guy that's literally holding death matches where it's like, if you die, you die. It's, it's just a complete affront to everything that the side that society accepts, you know, they're just wild men. One thing that I particularly like about reading this book is for one Hunter's writing is very unique and he's a very good writer, right? But he peppers in enough sort of outside information that you don't really get the sense that you're reading something. It's it doesn't have an academic feel, but it definitely has sort of like this this angle to the writing where you know that you're sort of learning something, right? Cuz he's got like these little epigraphs in front of chapters. He's sort of like uh, puts quotes right and uh, you know he's got aspects of like this lynch report that's in there uh, I think he was like the lynch was like the state attorney or something like yeah. that or attorney general so it's not just Hunter S. Thompson watching karate death matches and drinking <laughs> beer with these guys and writing about it he does a fantastic job of really giving you a lot of information and I think the necessary sort of points of information and then still being able to be Hunter S. Thompson in sort of the like the la- the latter half of the book. Right. Right. And yeah, I think he does a really good job of not showing any bias. He does defend them in some cases, but usually in the sense of like, no, 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 this, uh, you know, this court case got it wrong or this media article got it wrong. But he doesn't say they got it wrong because they're good people. He's like, they got it wrong because they said they did these bad things when in reality they did these bad things. Yes. You know, and he does quite a few times in the book, surprisingly, actually kind of belittle them. Like, yeah, he oh, doesn't yeah. hold back from saying negative things about them. And he even talks himself when his first article came out and then he's in the car with Sonny and another member on the Bass Lake run and somebody brings up his first article and he's like really worried because he's like, I, it wasn't all good. Like, it's not like he wrote an article trash talking them, but he's like, I was honest. I didn't say all nice things, said some pretty mean things. And he's like, I'm sitting here beside the president of like the most ruthless motorcycle gang of the time. And I had just written an article that doesn't, that says some bad things about them. And he's like, worried what's going to happen. He's like, are they going to blow up at me here? Am I going to get beat up? You know, he does a really good job. I don't think anyone else could have done this the way Hunter did. This is a gem, right? Like this is yeah. a very unique piece of writing and what he did well, can never be recreated, right? For and sure. I'm sure there, there's been tons of fucking copycats. I can't think of any that come to mind, right? But there's there's something about what he did here in particular, like his attitude as a writer and as a journalist that he was able to sort of sustain this relationship as long as he did. And don't get me wrong, like this was not just, yeah, we drink beer and I'm going to write what I'm going to write. Like, it seemed like there was tension, like sort of like, uh, I guess, cascades of tension with the club throughout this time period. Like it wasn't it wasn't like it was all fun and games. You know what I mean? Like, don't get me wrong. They're getting drunk. They're getting high. They're shooting guns. Right. They're riding motorcycles. All that stuff sounds awesome. But there's still there's like this wild animal. Right. There's this menace. There's like these mutants. And these are the sort of the terms that he's using to describe members of the Hells Angels. And. He's not one of them. And I think he doesn't necessarily have to say it, but you definitely get the sense that there's, even though Hunter's there and he's drinking drinking beer, he's taking the uppers with him, right? He's rubbing shoulders with him. You, you know that there's a difference here in what Hunter is and what the Hell's Angels are. Kind of like a remora. You know that fish that sits on the belly of the shark? 
Yeah. On the bottom, like kind of upside down. Yeah. And there's yeah. like a symbiotic relationship there. And it's like they're going on the same path. They're doing a lot of the same things. But there's always an understanding that the remora is one thing and the shark is an entirely different thing. The shark is allowing you to be there. But there's you could get eaten by the shark at any time. You know, like the Hells Angels are the shark. And they just, he's along for the ride and he's into it enough that he's not really taking the backlash that the other journalists would take. But there's always this fear that, like, you're riding along with a monster. And you, like, it, this thing's a killer. And it could go south at any moment. And it does go south for him. I think it's uh, in the postscript he talks about getting beat. Yeah, so he doesn't get into why. Um, but I dove into that a little further. And so this kind of shows, this actually, it's the perfect scenario to show his relationship with the Hells Angels. You know, for the most part, a lot of them didn't give a fuck about him. They get that he's there. They don't necessarily really understand why, but some of them like him, some of them don't. But he did build a close relationship with some of these guys, Tiny being the main one. And which is funny because he talks about Tiny being ruthless. Like this is not a guy you want to get in a fight with. This guy will just fuck up five dudes, no problem. He's an angry, violent, aggressive guy. But for some reason, Tiny takes a liking to him. What actually happened in this scenario, and I watched a wild interview with about this, I'll touch on later, but there was a get-together out at one of these clubhouses or whatever, and one of the members, I think it was Junkie John, his wife and his dog were there. And he gets in an argument with his wife, and he ends up beating her. And uh, the dog attacks him while he's beating her, so he ends up kicking the fuck out of the dog too. And Hunter... You know, all the other members are kind of like, it is what it is, leave it alone. Hunter, you know, obviously being more on the regular society side of things. When it comes to journalists, Hunter's not a regular guy. You know, <laughs> in the world of journalism, he's the Hell's Angel. But in the world of Hell's Angels, he's a fucking journalist, you know? And so he decides to say something. And all he does is say, hey, man, don't beat your wife. Or I think I think what he actually says is there was an angel that quoted him saying, only a coward beats a woman or something like that. And so they kick the fuck out of him to the point that he says that one guy was holding a big ass rock, had gone and gotten this rock and was holding it over his head and was going to smash it down on Hunter. He gets shit kicked as is, and he was about to get smashed by this rock. And then he says he sees uh, he sees Tiny and he goes, normally Tiny is not the guy that you want to see when there's a group of Hells Angels kicking the fuck out of you because he's going to be the worst one. But Tiny actually kind of says, hey, enough, 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 and pulls him up and gets him out of there. And the other members are kind of like, hey, what the fuck? But it's like, if it wasn't for this relationship he had built with this one guy, it could have gone a lot worse. But he even said he got back to his vehicle and went immediately to the hospital. But it's like, it just goes to show, you know, Hunter's writing this book about them. This could have been something that was mostly really good, but because of this chaos that they live in, they end up burning another bridge because Hunter says one thing that they don't agree with, you know, and it's like riding with the shark. You've been there the whole time. It's going smooth. It's mostly beneficial for him because he's getting great material, but then you say one wrong thing and the shark turns on you. And he said that's the last time that he went back to them. He didn't go back and see them anymore. So this interview I watched, it, it's crazy, man. 
it, it goes to show how different the times were. So I can't remember the show, but it's essentially a talk show and it's all in black and white. And they have Hunter S. Thompson out on the stage. And then they have a member of the Angels ride his motorcycle out onto the stage. And he's wearing his, you know, he's wearing his cut and everything. And I think I know which interview you're talking about. And they yeah. start asking him about what had happened. And he goes, hey, man, we don't care. We just want our two fucking kegs you promised us. That's right. Yeah. yeah. He goes, you told us when you were done the book, you would give us two kegs of beer so we could get fucking drunk. And then you would give every member of the Oakland chapter a, bo- a copy of the book. And he goes, you didn't give us any of that. And Hunter's kind of like, well, you guys kicked the fuck out of me. I kind of figured we were even, you know? And yeah. he's like, oh, well, you're making millions off of this book. And Hunter just kind of laughs. And he's like, if you knew what I was making off this book, you wouldn't sell me that motorcycle on credit. You know? <laughs> like, he's kind of like, and of course, if you're going to read the book, I highly recommend watching this interview and any of his other interviews and specifically watch interviews of Johnny Depp talking about Hunter S. Thompson because you do get a sense of his character in this book, but you need to listen to him talk before you read because he's such a unique character and the way it's kind of this like nasally mumble and he almost like it almost kind of sounds like you're talking to a homeless junkie, you know, like it's this weird rambling. It's very intelligent, but it's roundabout and long winded and he has this just like (laughs) like it's if you understand what he sounds like, you'll enjoy the book so much more. But so Hunter tries to like give his rebuttal and the angel tells the story of what happened about how, you know, Junkie John's beaten his wife and the crowd is like laughing, you know, it's, it's so weird. Like you look at the, at the crowd and it's like, you know, slick back hair, like the suit and tie or like a cardigan and tie or whatever. Like it's like Hunter's the bad guy. Yeah. And the Hell's and the, Angels is the good guy yeah, yeah, in this it's, interview. Well, it's like a circus show, you know, it's like people looking at a bear at a circus and being like, oh, look at this crazy bear where it's like, not if you saw that bear in the wild, that's a fucking bear. <laughs> but if you're looking at it at a circus or a zoo, it's just entertainment, you know, and he's talking about how like you shouldn't have gotten the way, you know, he's like. He's like, so what? He was beating his wife, man. Like, sometimes you got to to keep him in line, you know? And the crowd is just laughing. And it's so bizarre to watch. You're like, is this fake? You know? Like, but it, it shows the different times. You know, obviously now, if a guy goes on a talk show and says, if a guy's beating his wife, you should stay the fuck out of it, that person's getting canceled forever. Yeah, it's you know? horrific. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like, say goodbye to anything you've ever done because it's, you're getting canceled. But. It's it's so bizarre to watch, and Hunter doesn't really get a chance to defend himself because you know it's it's a kind of a soundbite type show, and they have a limited amount of time, and Hunter's just trying to like ramble on his own defense and runs out of time. <laughs> but yeah, it's crazy, man. It shows you the way the media was back then, and the way people were back then, and the way they looked at the whole thing. Like some people had such a misunderstanding of how dangerous these guys could be that they it was like I said, it was like a circus bear. It's like when you see, when you're driving to Banff or Jasper and you see people pulled over on the side of the road so they could take a picture of a moose or a fucking grizzly bear and you're like, what the fuck are you doing? Absolutely, man. What the, f- like a fucking grizzly bear? That's that's an apex predator. There is like, you don't have a chance. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, this isn't a cuddly creature from a Disney movie. You that's know? right, yeah. This isn't your teddy bear. This thing eats things alive, you know, kill a moose in one swing. Like I had an interesting scenario once actually riding down to uh, uh, Montana and we, I was taking the uh, going to the sun road, beautiful ride, 
it in a car or on a bike, you know, if anyone has the chance to go, it's one of the most amazing places I've ever seen in my life. But I'm with my buddy, Mo, we're on the bikes and we get in this like stop and go traffic and you're in this mountain pass. So we're at this point where it's like basically a drop off on the outside of the outside lane and on the beside our lane, it's just this steep grassy hill that goes like right up and traffic is dead stop because there's these two grizzly bear cubs on the side of the road playing around in the grass being adorable as fuck like baby bears do they're so goddamn cute and they definitely make you drop your guard but everyone's sitting there in their cars with their windows down and looking at them and nobody has a care in the world and here's me and mo on our motorcycles in stop and go traffic and this isn't a place where you can take the shoulder or take the ditch and get around people it's a mountain pass most of it you can see scratches in the rocks because the lanes are so small and the corners are so tight that people end up catching the the cliff face and like regularly somebody goes off the cliff and dies. So we're in this spot where there's like no exit route and me and Mo are looking at each other and looking at everybody else and they're off in the time of their lives. And we're like, there's a mama grizzly bear here somewhere. And I can't roll my windows up and be safe. I'm a preheated burrito on this fucking motorcycle if this bear comes down, you know? And it's like, you could just see the difference. People looking at these baby bears, no sense of the imminent danger. And the two of us just with this extreme understanding of like, if something happens, how do I get out of here? And honestly, I'm dropping my bike and diving in somebody's car. <laughs> like, you know, there's nothing else you could do. But yeah, it's it's some people that they just look at it and they don't, there's just sheltered enough they don't grasp you know what could potentially happen and you see it like we said with the lady at the bass lake run that just brought her kid to this hell's angels rally because they just wanted to see one and it's like it's wild man the way the media portrayed them in in both ways back then is just crazy when you read this and you know even though hunter is media himself right he's a journalist but he's sort of reporting on how these different outlets or how these different newspapers or magazines, right? They kind of have like these trends that they follow, right? In the way that they'll sort of frame certain stories and how it's not exactly, you know, objective. There's a heavy bias to it, right? There's definitely an angle that a lot of these outlets are taking. And you're like, oh yeah, like that's still, that's today, all right? Like we yeah. still have all the same problems or, sort of faults with journalism that Hunter is identifying in the way that Hell's Angels are being portrayed and how that sort of starts this cyclone of myth and sort of self-fulfilling prophecy with how the angels even interpret themselves and what they need to be or what they believe they need to be, right? You see that, you see that and you're like, oh, that's still here. Media hasn't gotten better. It's just gotten better at like giving us more and more and more in short order. But you're like, the same sort of problems still seem to exist in 1966 as they do in 2022. I think the main difference now is that there's so many sources of media at your fingertips. So if you want to, you could dive in and find something else. You can find the other side if you really go looking, you know, but back then the news was just what was on the news. You know, you couldn't really go and look up anything else that the Hells Angels did, you know? You'd never know that they were helping people on the side of the road. And again, not saying that they're great people, but you would never hear anything other than just what your newspaper tells you. You know, nowadays you can go and find something else if you really want to look. Most people don't, of course. We kind of stick to our one news page that we watch and that's it. But uh, it's there's definitely still the same biases, but you have access to more information now if you want to try to find it. 
speaking of like the the roadside and the business cards, there was this moment where uh, a group of Hell's Angels are going to a run and they have to stop off at like one of those small little gas station garages. And the owner is immediately petrified. It's like one of those guys that owns the shop, but he also pumps the gas, right? Yeah. And these Hell's Angels are like immediately in the garage working on their bikes. They're filling up their bikes. They're looking for oil. And then in this situation, when they leave, the shop is cleaner than it was when they got there because they swept up. Not, they paid in cash. They paid for everything that they that they took. And the owner's kind of like, what the fuck just happened, right? <laughs> yeah. But in, in other scenarios, like Hunter says, like, had he been a bit of a jerk, they just would have taken everything and then fucking broken all the windows. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to fill up all the bikes, not pay for it, take your oil, smash your place up, and then leave. Yeah. Yeah, you know, like so that just goes to show like how the club is operating in these extremes. They're either over here or they're over there. There's no gentle middle ground, right? Mm -hmm. It's just you know ninety miles an hour, or they need to repair their bike. Like there's no like, and and Hunter does say like when they're going on these big like Fourth of July runs or Labor Day runs, how they have to follow the speed limit because if they don't, they're gonna get pinched. They're gonna have their driving records pulled and that was sort of a way that the police got these guys sort of off the streets right like oh pull their oh you got a ticket okay you're going to jail right yeah for going one mile over the speed limit right so there is yeah they do ride the speed limit it's not like in every instance they're going 90 miles an hour but in more often they're not they're driving as fast as they fucking can on these motorcycles right there's a disregard for well let me reframe that they know that going 90 miles an hour is incredibly dangerous, is is just a show of insanity. And I think you really tapped into that with the reading of this book is like they do it because they know and because it freaks everyone else out, right? And even like, uh, you know, when these guys end up in the emergency room and they have like the, the quote-unquote officials looking down on them on like the hospital bed because they just, they're almost looking back and grinning. Like I see these Hells Angels looking back at these doctors that are like trying to patch them up and grinning because they're just like, yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a badge of honor almost. And they've embraced it so much. You can see it when uh, he talks about how some of the rallies, especially like the Bass Lake one, you know, where they know there's going to be trouble. Like there's going to be civilians there. We're probably going to start some shit. They'll intentionally leave their old lady at home. Yeah. Because they're like, (laughs) they're like, sure. I'd love to have the old lady there to party and bang and whatever. But they're like, we're going there to start some shit. There's going to be trouble. And they're like, And it's not, it's funny because when you first read it, you're like, oh, let's consider it. You know, you know, there's going to be violence. You'll leave her at home to keep her out of it. But the reality is they're doing it because if you get arrested, it's much easier when you have somebody at home, you can call and they have access to your cash you have hidden away. They can bail you out. They can call the people that you need to call. The bail bondsman and all that. Call the bail bondsman. Yeah. It's like. I'm I'm leaving you at home because you're going to be a tool I'm going to need when I go fuck some people up and get thrown in prison. <laughs> you know, it's like the it's not it's it's weird, man, because, again, we've said so many times that it's just anarchy and chaos, but it's almost premeditated. You know, they're like, we accept the fact that there's going to be anarchy and chaos. And I'm prepared to the point that I'm going to leave you here because I'm going to need you when I go and start some shit because I know I'm going to do it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> who do you think should read this book? Like, we obviously read this book because it's Hell's Angels, and a large portion of it is just the motorcycle culture that sort of gets intertwined with the motorcycle club. But 
having this book now in 2022, we got a book that's written in 1966. Like, I'm not sure who the audience is anymore. Yeah, it's tough to say. You know, if you're a fan of Hunter at all, definitely read it. If you're a fan of motorcycles or interested in the Hells Angels at all, definitely read it. If you've watched Sons of Anarchy, definitely read it. You know, if you're only understanding of motorcycle clubs is watching sons of anarchy read this fucking book you know and take that fucking sam crow sweater off but uh but which is interesting though because there is a lot of hell's angels influence in that tv show sure you know sonny barger himself is in it you know but it is again it's hollywood right so it's played up and uh, i think it's important for people to understand anyone that has an interest in this to see it up close and personal because nobody else could have done it the way Hunter did it. He's it's like trying to make pet detective without Jim Carrey. You know, you never it's never you're never going to get it right because Hunter's a wild man himself. If you do a little bit of research on him, you'll see there's pictures of him out there on a Harley Davidson in short shorts shooting off a fucking revolver. He's a wild man. He's crazy. There's interviews where he's shooting rounds off across his farm at his neighbor, you know, <laughs> like there's nobody else that could have dove into it this much. So anyone that has any exposure to this world or has, has any interest in it should for sure read it. But to me, it also feels like it's important for people that have no exposure to this world to read it. Because like I said, it's not hyped up media. It's this is the reality. It's the good and the bad. You know, he shows he talks about both sides and it gives you a really good understanding of what it's like to be on the other side. And I think it's important for people to like, you know, anytime you have a belief in something, read what the other side believes, whether you agree with it or not, read it, try to understand it, try to see where they're coming from. If you have been lucky enough to live a mostly sheltered life and you don't have any exposure to this kind of just like in your face violence and aggression and vulgarity, it's kind of a unique way to see like there's people out there that this is all they want. They don't want to be rich. They don't want a mansion. They just want to get drunk, ride motorcycles and fight. You know, like it kind of gives you an understanding of what kind of people are out there. And I think it's a good reminder that like maybe when you're out and about in the world, not everyone is a terrible person, even if they look like it, but they also might be a terrible person. You know, (laughs) situational awareness is important. And you see that in Hunter a lot in this book. It's hard for me to really put in a box who should read it. Because it's one, and I'm terrible for this, like notoriously, if I like a book, I'm always like, read this fucking book, read this fucking book, and just handing them out to people, and they never get read because people are like, this isn't my interest. But I'm generally one of those people that's like, everybody should read it. I think it's a great book. Everyone should go read it. So I I don't think I have a good answer for that question. <laughs> well, and that's, that's something that I was thinking about, and it's definitely a, a challenging sort of question to answer because I think, like you said there's these large interests that this book all pulls in. Like you said, oh, gang culture, right? Yes. Oh, Hunter S. Thompson, just as a writer and like a pop culture figure? Yes. Oh, 1966 America in California? Yes. There's a lot of like large strings that kind of get pulled together here. And I think that's what makes this book so special and so unique, right? And also so bizarre. And here's like, my sort of like reading experience with Hunter S. Thompson is I start sort of started with like the Johnny Depp, Belicio del Toro, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas movie. And like, what the fuck is that guy about? And then worked my way back, right? Yeah. Because I was in high school uh, the year that Hunter S. Thompson died, right? And that was sort of the same year that I saw Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, the film. And then I started working my way back. 
So my first reading of this book is I'm like, I'm expecting something. I'm expecting Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, but Hell's Angels, right? Yeah. And that's not what this book is. This is this is not Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas with the death head on it, right? Like, mm. you do get, like, if you have sort of like a basic understanding of Hunter S. Thompson and his writing, right? You're not, it's not diluted. It might be a little bit muted because he's still sort of like we talked about in the in the early portions of this episode. Like he's he's still sort of stepping into his voice, right? And this is the book that really sort of shot him forward in popularity and infamy, right? But it's not going to be wild right from the get go because he does need to lay a lot of the groundwork. And so that's sort of the the sort of like you should read this, but right, like that's that's what I'm trying to say here is like it's going to take a moment. Right. There's there's a few gears that Hunter needs to go through before you hit like the 90 mile an hour stuff. Once once the book kind of comes to its end. Right. Yeah. A hundred percent. And I really took that into consideration uh, when I did my octane rating. I kind of have two ratings, depending on what you're looking for. In general, I'd say the book's a 91. It's a great book. It really like I've said a bunch of times, I don't think anyone could have done it better than Hunter. And I think he did a great job of still being a journalist and not being who he is in Fear and Loathing because I think that would have skewed it a little bit more. You know, he would have become too much of a Hell's Angel to write objectively. But if you're looking for just a good book, an honest book on the Hell's Angels, it's a 91. If you're looking for that overdose of gonzo journalism that is Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas or is Fear and Loathing on the campaign trail of 74, then it's an 89. Because the book itself is great, but if if that wild hunter experience is what you're looking for, it this isn't quite it. Whether it's because he hasn't gotten there yet, because I think this was his first published book, or maybe he actively chose not to be that crazy. Because let's be honest, Fear and Loathing, there is a massive amount of drug consumption. Oh, fuck. He's out of his head the whole time. <laughs> like... <laughs> You you watch it sober and you're like, how many drugs did I just do? You know, yeah. like it's insanity, you know, and I so I don't know if he actively chose to avoid that to still be able to have a clear image of it all or if he just wasn't quite that guy yet. But it, like I said, if you're looking for gonzo journalism insanity, go for Fear and Loathing uh, in Las Vegas or the Campaign Trail of 74. If you're looking for a great book about the Hells Angels, this is the one. And I, I thoroughly believe that this is the most honest exposure you're going to get. The only other book I would recommend uh, as far as Hells Angels go and getting a, a true image of what they're all about is a book called Unrepentant by Peter Edwards. This is set in a later era, so it's set in Canada, and it's it's written by an ex-Hells Angels member who got out at like 60, and he was kind of like an enforcer. He was the VP for uh, Satan's Choice before they patched over and became Hells Angels, and uh, so he has some wild stories. So it's an inside story, right? The shit that he did as like a basically an enforcer debt collector for the Angels. So once again, you're going to get a real picture of the Hells Angels, but it's later on. You know, this is after they've been patched over in, uh, like we said, 77, they came to Canada. So it's after all that. So this is Hunter's version of it is the early days, kind of the creation of them and how they became to be the machine and the monster that they are now. 
So those are the only two books I think you're ever going to get a proper, you know, no holds barred, honest, good, bad, and the ugly view of the Hells Angels. And I like how you really sort of share a means for any future readers to set their expectations because Hells Angels, a strange and terrible saga, you're right. It is, it's a slice in time, right? And you're not going to get, obviously, you're not going to know what the Hells Angels like are in the later years because this is the formative years, right? right? And I think you're right. Hunter S. Thompson, too, like you were saying, like if you wanted the insane stuff, go read Hunter S. Thompson's Fear and Loathing of Vegas campaign uh, on the campaign trail 74, right? Those are the books, like if you want the zany stuff, like in the drug use, heavy drug use, go for there. Like in this book, Hunter still has a job to do and he doesn't abandon it because that's, that's sort of something that happens when he's put on assignment. Like uh, I think... He goes to Africa to cover like the boxing match, Muhammad Ali, like Rumble in the Jungle, and then he just yeah. doesn't go. Yeah, and he just like chills out in the pool, right? And you're like, well, <laughs> what, right? So like, yeah. So in this book, you're right. Like, I think it's you should sort of approach it with some with some ex with a very sort of measured sort of like uh, expectations. Like, it's going to be good. It's going to be fantastic. It's still journalism, and I think it's true as it's going to be in this regard, right? But I agree with you. This isn't a 94. This isn't something that you're like, holy fuck. Yeah. What did I just read? You're like, okay, yeah. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think depending on what you want to get out of it, that's what your octane rating is going to be. I think for me, I'm I'm probably leaning towards a 91. I'm going to give it a 91 just because I also like, I like Hunter S. Thompson, right? So, right. I mean, I got my own biases, right? So, but I think I think your assessment is very fair. Well, and just a disclaimer, you know, <laughs> we've said uh, this might not be the holy fuck that you might expect it to be. That's coming from two people that have read a bunch of Hunter S. Thompson. You know, I've read a bunch of Chuck Palahniuk. I've read a bunch of this kind of shit. And so to us, with past exposure to it, it it's not really that. If you've never read anything by Hunter S. Thompson, you've never seen Fear and Wilding in Las Vegas, this might be a holy fuck book to you. That's Yes, you're right. It's a small dose of Hunter and it's a small dose of gonzo journalism. But if you're used to, you know, this is the difference between somebody that lives stateside and writes an article about a war, you know, writes what their views are from home without being overseas versus wartime journalism like you're there on the front line with a camera you know that's the difference so if what you've read about the hell's angels before or all the journalism you consume is kind of a third person view this is going to seem wild to you because this is the guy that's there in the gunfire literally (laughs) gunfire (laughs) out his back window you know and crashes and splitting his own head open and getting shit kicked by the people that he's been there with for you know a year being you know, shoulder to shoulder on in rallies, drinking beers with people that have been accused multiple times of rape, guys that have literally gone to jail for rape and like people ready for gang wars. You know, you're going to the pub to meet the people you're writing about. And the guy you got to talk to is laying up on top of the roof with a thermos of coffee and a machine gun, you know, like <laughs> it's pretty in your face. But that being said, if you haven't read anything else by Hunter and you do read this book, I recommend carrying on down the path and trying something else. Because if you like this one, it's you. Ju- it just gets so much better once he really comes into character. 
Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas has got to be my favorite. Like it's pretty good. You, you can watch the movie if you want. It's it is pretty close to the book, uh, with Johnny Depp being a friend of Hunter's, and he talks in some of his interviews about how they met and how they got along. He does a really good job of capturing the character. But if you enjoy Hunter's writing in this and kind of his his unique character, I highly recommend going deeper because it's it's just such a gift to readers. You know, <laughs> he's such a wild guy. No, like I've read Fear and Wilding a couple of times, and every time I'm just like. What? <laughs> it's, it's insanity, man. So this is the second time that, I re- that I've read A Strange and Terrible Saga. The first time would probably be over 10 years ago. It's probably coming up on between the 10 and 15 years ago is when I first read this book. And I, I approached it with a lot of expectations. And I actually put it down. I It took me a while to do the first reading because I was sort of stuck in the first half of the book. Because it's unless you have a lot of interest with how long form journalism in sort of the uh the form of a book sort of plays out i remember i had the bookmark in it and i was barely barely through halfway through the book and it sat for like a long time before i picked it up and at that point like you kind of lose a lot of the information You're like where was i like who is that person right you know so that was sort of my first reading on it. having read it the second time, right, with different interests in mind, taking like a, a sort of like a a wider body of knowledge and throwing it at this book, right? Like, because I was just basically a a fuck up when I read it the first time, right? Let's just <laughs> let's just say that, right? And now reading it, I think I think for me, I got more out of it the second time, right, than I did the first time, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is one of those books for sure that if you read it and haven't experienced anything else by Hunter, you could definitely go back and read it again later on once you've read more of his other books. Or once you've had time, like, again, books age so well. I guess we kind of age around the books, you know? Like, if you read a book when you're young, going back to read it again later, when you have kind of a more mature mind and a little bit more life experience, like, this is one of those books where you could definitely go back and read it again later and have a different view on it, just because you kind of understand more of the world, you know? And you have a better understanding of history. Most of the books that are set in these eras, when you're young, you have a hard time grasping what the world was like back then. Yeah, there's still some references in the book that I had to look up. I'm like, I don't know who the fuck this person is. <laughs> yeah, for right? sure. Because if you read them then, it would have been someone that was prominent in the media. That's right, yeah. You know? And, uh, and Hunter does a really good job of that. Like, especially wildly enough you know you wouldn't really expect it from someone that's as crazy as this guy is but he has a really solid grasp on like political leaders yes you know and like public media and stuff like that so he does definitely make some references and you know and just the way they talk about like getting around the way the cars are the price of things like it really it's set in a different time you know it's the mid-60s were a long fucking time ago and the world was a lot different back then like we said LSD was still legal. You know, like <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. The way the, the way people viewed these characters and you know the crimes that were committed and the drugs that were consumed, it's just it's totally different. Actually, one thing to note, it's interesting when he talks about his landlords when he got evicted. When they're showing up for money, he mentions that his landlords were Asian. And they hadn't seen the media on the Hells Angels. So when they show up. And they're coming to ask him questions about disturbances or whatever or to get some money. They bang on the door and they send, uh, I think it was Terry the Tramp, to answer the door because they're like, oh, that'll scare them away because he's this big, terrible Hells Angels guy, you know, wearing his vest and whatever. And he goes to the door and they're like, 
hey, is Hunter here? Because they see this guy and they, without the media hype, they don't understand who, who this creature is. He's just a weird bearded guy in this part of town. It's not that weird. It's just a motorcycle guy, you know? And they're like, yeah, we want to talk to Hunter. And he, Terry comes back. He's like, that didn't fucking work at all. <laughs> like, if you don't understand, if you haven't seen the media on it, you don't get why. Unless he puts that violence in your face, you don't understand the imminent threat. You don't understand what that guy represents, right? We're kind of going to change gears again here for the next episode. And I'm glad that you bring that up. Yeah. So, I mean, this one, we've switched a lot already. The next one is, it's really philosophical. And it's a double feature, right? So, uh, why don't you touch a little bit on the next couple books we're going to be reading here. So, in the next episode, we're going to be reading Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, uh, An Inquiry into Values by Robert Persig. And we're also going to be reading Zen and Now on the Trail of Robert Persig by Mark Richardson. Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance is, I'm going to say it has some sort of like literary controversy behind it because it's a difficult book and it's going to bonk you over the head with philosophy and it's repeatedly yes and it's also sort of like tied up in a motorcycle trip right there's some parts and this is the third time that i'm reading zen in the art and there's there's still parts in it where i'm like what Hmm. what the fuck and this is also me like at after having graduated university and having a minor in philosophy, right? Right. So some of the authors that this guy brings up, I'm like, like I've read these authors now, right? So we're also reading Zen and Now by Mark Richardson as a way to help understand and inform our reading of Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And you really need it. You know, this is kind of like code breaking in World War II. You know, if you don't have the cipher, it doesn't make any fucking sense. I'm sure for somebody like you, you probably grasp it a little better. For somebody like me that got high school and went and worked fucking oil patch, the first time I read it, a lot went over my head. You know, I really enjoyed it, but I knew that I didn't get a lot of it. And reading it again, it still just doesn't, I don't have the tools that I needed to put that information together and to make it stick. You know, We'll really dive into why that is once you learn more about uh, Robert Persig himself. But without uh, Zen and Now uh, by Mark Richardson, you just don't have the filter that you need to look at it to get all the information. And he did a great job. You know, obviously you couldn't really read Zen and Now on its own. He does. It's an okay book. You could do standalone, but it really is built to be this is your filter for this book. Read this book, read this book, and together they're going to make a great story. Yeah. You know, and uh, I'm really excited for it. Uh, we're probably going to get deep. And uh, some people love this book, you know, Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Some people, I think usually the ones that haven't read Zen and Now, they just couldn't, they couldn't get themselves into it. But it depends how you read it. It's one of those books that like, if you're just looking for a story, it's not the book. No. You know, but if you really want to dive in and and wrap your brain around something and probably struggle with it, this is a great book. Like a genius man, the writing is phenomenal. He's very intelligent. He's a very good writer. And uh, and there's a lot of questions and not necessarily a lot of answers. I feel like this is a guy that had a lot of thoughts that he never resolved. And a lot of them come out in this book. And uh, I'm excited to get into it and see if we can shed some light, you know, which that's uh we'll see how that goes <laughs> uh in the meantime 
If you want to get a hold of me, I'm just at Jonah Condro on Instagram. That's the best way to get a hold of me. So let me know what you're reading. Let me know what you think of this podcast. Or maybe you read Hell's Angels, A Strange and Terrible Saga by Hunter S. Thompson, and you got a different take from it that's different than what we discussed. I want to hear about it. Yeah, and I'm enlightened underscore dirtbag on Instagram. Send me pictures of your bike. Shoot me a follow. Send me book recommendations. You know, whenever we touch on topics like this, Hunter S. Thompson, Hell's Angels, if there's a Hunter book that you read that you think we should read, if there's a different book on Hell's Angels you think we should read, let us know. Maybe it'll kind of give us some new information. Like we said, Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, Zen and Now, it's kind of one of those great examples of one book really helps you appreciate the other. So if there's something we've read that you think we could get more out of with another book, definitely let us know. And if you've got suggestions for a genre or a topic that we should hit for next season, as we've said, this season's all motorcycles. We're both motorcycle enthusiasts ourselves, so it seemed like the right way to start off. But if you've got a suggestion you want us to try on for the next season, you know, maybe some specific books or maybe just an entire topic, shoot us a message. We'll see what we think. We've got a couple ideas ourselves, but we haven't settled on anything. So always open to recommendations.